Do you really want your company to stand out in the crowded digital space? Do you want to get more people to know, like, and trust you with your story? Authentic Web Video Marketing Agency can help you to collect those stories, the stories that sell, connect the stories to the situation, produce the videos that you need in each of the situations, and then use the latest techniques, including video ads, retargeting, and email to deliver those video stories. Authentic Web is the video production and marketing agency trusted by top marketers to help their story stand out in a crowded space. Visit AuthenticWeb.media to learn more. In a world full of boring stories, bad videos, and marketing misinformation, one very tall man with a weird last name will use his microphone. Is this thing on? Use his video marketing knowledge. It's the red button, right? And use his friends. Please be on the show. To change that. You are listening to The Garlic Marketing Show with Ian. What? No, that's how you pronounce it. Well, if you say so, your host, Ian Garlic. Welcome to another Garlic Marketing Show. Ian Garlic here, and today I've got a guest I've been super excited to have on. I've told a lot of you about it. Um, uh, he's not only a, a TED speaker, author, but he really found out this area of neuroeconomics. And when you think about economics, it's money and decision-making, and neuroscience is just how the chemistry behind it. Um, author of The Moral Molecule, I highly suggest it. And Trust Factor is his latest book. It's really the science of creating high-performance companies. Paul, Zach, thank you so much for being on. Hey, I'm so happy to be on with you. Oh, it's great. It's great. I mean, I when I started reading your studies and stuff, I'm like, you know, we do. I talk to people a lot about the power of story and really how it transforms people and gets you to be known, liked, and trusted. I'm like, and now I'm like, oh, here's all the science behind it because being having an economics background and a math background, you know, we always had a proof. Right. <laughs> so it was like, bam. So tell me a little bit how you came into this, because I've read the book. I know, but I think it's a really interesting story of how you came to understand this and find the, these answers to neuroscience and decision making. Right. So I had done this work starting in the late 90s, uh, relating trust at the country level to uh, rates of uh, living standards. So why why living standards are so high and uh, Western Europe, Scandinavian countries, and and so low in Latin America and Africa, and it turned out that trust was this was this you know big lever that really improved performance, and we identified the factors that create trust, and and the work had a lot of impact, a lot of mathematics in there, and and, and all that, and you know, the World Bank flies me out, you know, how do we raise trust in these developing countries? And inevitably, I would get this question, which is, gosh, for a given country, why do two strangers ever trust each other? And I would sort of hem and haw, well, you know, and I start, you have this uh, weird feeling as a researcher, like I take a shower now because I'm full of crap, right? <laughs> and so um, I'm thinking that's a really good question, right? So if I meet you in Orlando, um, I'm going to have something instant in my brain that tells me, Ian, great guy, want to want to trust him, and the, the guy next to you, Bob, not so much. So there's the only way we can live around strangers, right, which we live in these big cities. So how do we do that? I started thinking there's got to be some mechanism in the brain. And as you know, my, my background's both in economics and biology and neuroscience. And so, you know, I read, 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 and I found this mechanism in animals that 
uh, particularly in rodents, that I uh, uh, signal familiarity or safety. So um, in rodents, if we're in our little burrow, it's dark, so we use smell. So we go, it smells like Ian, yeah, <laughs> I remember him. Uh, and so uh, oxytocin is released in the brain, this brain chemical, uh, that, that like many chemicals in the brain, does lots of things, facilitates birth and breastfeeding. But in the brain, it works as this safety, familiarity signal. And I thought, gosh, familiarity and trust probably run on a continuum, could we test that in humans? And the answer is no way, no how, because it involves drilling holes into uh, the, the skulls of rodents. <laughs> and so it took me a while to figure out how to create experiments where I could induce the brain to make oxytocin, measure it. It's a very short half-life signal, as you know, um, about three minutes. And so once we worked out that protocol, then we had this new tool to actually sort of figure out why I would trust you, why I don't trust Bob. Uh, what it, it, knowing that signal allows me to know what promotes or inhibits that signal. It gives me so much information. What about people with psychiatric disorders? What about people who, I don't know, were abandoned as children? Uh, you know, I, I can ask so many interesting questions about the variation in the kind of behaviors we see. And then just to take it up to the present now, um, as you know, the work got some media attention and blah, blah, blah. And then uh, eventually, about eight years ago, companies started knocking on my lab door saying, Hey, we think trust is important in our organization. Can you tell us how to raise trust? And I said, sure. Uh, I'll take both of your employees. We had this assay that we developed, and they're like, they turned white, you know, like, oh, I don't to do that. And so then I started getting, having that feeling like I got to take a shower again because I thought, I'm a trust expert, but actually I can't advise companies. So anyway, spent eight years measuring brain activity while people worked to measure the factors that affect the way people interact socially. Um, uh, in the new book, we show that there's these eight building blocks for organizational trust. We developed an online tool so people can measure trust in their organization and these factors, and then essentially push on these factors to raise trust, and trust substantially increases productivity, performance, happiness at work, health uh, at work, uh, outside of work. And so um, you, you, you've worked in places like that, and I have too, where you are just ground down at the end of the day, and you got nothing left, and you go home. And you're not the best parent. You're not the best spouse. You just you just hate your job. And so places where trust is high, teamwork is great, people cooperate, they're more effective, and they just like doing work more. It's just more interesting. Yeah, yeah. I mean, trust, it's critical to everything we do because we're not going to move forward with anything without trust or some sort of prod, right? I mean, I could put a gun to your head or I could say, hey, you know, we should do this project. It's good for both of us. Um, Again, there's not there's no sense in which this is about um, unaccounted for trust, right? So if I'm going to build a team, out, so the book talks about this from a neurologic perspective. I want to give you clear milestones, stretch goals, lots of feedback, daily huddles, coaching. I'm going to make sure we're we're making progress. And if you're pulling my team down, we got to have a conversation. We got to try to fix it. Do you need more resources, more people? And so it, it's really trust and accountability, uh, and and. You know, trust, one of the components of trust is reliability. So if you're, a, I think you're trustworthy, but you keep falling down, then, you know, I've got to have a conversation with you. And the book talks about how to have that conversation, which is not this punitive or even hierarchical, you suck, I'm your supervisor, I'm going to fire your ass, as opposed to, hey, you know what, you, God, man, you've been working here two years, you've been rocking it. All of a sudden, now you're missing your goals. What's going on? Let's have a conversation. Something happening in your personal life, do you need time off? Because you're letting your team down, and we need you. We're, you're an important part of our community. So how do we bring you back into community, back into 
focusing your energy and passion on hopefully this thing that we're doing that's pretty cool for the world. And that's what I call transcendent purpose. And so every organization, according to Peter Drucker and Deming, all these great gurus, has this transcendent purpose, how we improve people's lives, which is why you're paying for it. And that's best expressed to your employees and to your customers in terms of a story that leads us right into marketing. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, that was a nice segue. (laughs) Um, You know, before we get into that, though, you know, we're talking about these big ideas like trust and marketing and and reliability, but you found the science, you found the chemistry behind it. And can we talk a little bit about that, you know, the oxytocin and what that does to a brain? Because it's not just oxytocin, which I think is important. Like everyone thinks it's just about feeling good. It's not that trust is not just about feeling good, is it? It's not. And in fact, um, you know, we, uh, the book has a lot of, of narratives of companies I've worked with, including companies like Zappos that has allowed me to actually put their data in the book, which is very nice of them. And the guys at Zappos and lots of other companies for a long time thought, we want our employees to be happy. So we're going to have Taco Tuesdays, and we're going to have sumo wrestling out, out front of the business. And uh, no, the science is really clear on that. You shouldn't try to make people happy. In fact, I want to stress you at work. I want to give you challenges. I want to make these hard goals that induce the brain to release oxytocin they give us a reason to work together. Otherwise, we're just going to idle, right? Our brains want to save energy. Um, so it's the process of doing something important, something with transcendent purpose, with a trusted team, that generates this feeling of satisfaction. It's not happiness. It's a little bit different notion where I feel like at the end of the day, I go home, I get to tell my spouse, you know, how was your day, honey? And I said, man, we killed it today. We were working on this project for this client. We thought we were just, you know, way off. And then... Ian came in, and then Bob came in, and we actually figured out how to make this thing. It is so awesome. The client's going to be thrilled. And, and so now the satisfaction of doing something hard but important. And that's where that, that real genuine sense of satisfaction with one's job comes from. Not because, again, we got free stuff at noon. <laughs> and, and, you know, it does lead into marketing because I, I preach this to everyone. You know, you've got to tell great stories, but... You have to tell them all the time. You have to be marketing all the time and not just to to your prospects, but to your current customers and to your team. Um, so tell me a little bit about how you guys have used this to in the marketing field. You know, I know you did some video studies, which were really interesting to me. And I'd love to hear a little bit more about those. Well, I'll talk about those, but I'm going to preface it just to finish the last thought, which was, um, as you said, you've got to market internally and externally. And so we, we, I spent a lot of time at Zappos. Actually, I'm going up next week with my class. I take my organizational behavior class up there for the tour. Uh, and um, uh, when we did this study with Zappos employees about five years ago, so it's, it's your day off. They're getting paid a little bit of money. Uh, we're doing blood draws. We're measuring brain activity, have people work in teams, and all kinds of things going on. And so it's, you know, literally it's painful. It's a painful study. And um, what I noticed was on their day off, at least half of those employees who volunteered for the study, okay, they, they got paid a little bit of money, uh, 30, 40 bucks or something, but uh, they wore Zappos logo gear, you know, T-shirts, sweatshirts. And after a while, I started asking them, like, what's the deal with all the Zappos stuff? And they said, oh, we have a lot of celebrations. We get a lot of T-shirts when we hit milestones. Great. So I have a bunch of these in my closet, number one. But number two, they said, I see myself 
as reflecting the values of Zappos. I see my personality as a Zappos person. I'm proud to be that person, so I want to wear the shirt on my day off. So what a win that is, right? So now, talk about the best marketing on the planet. You have your own employees who are out there evangelizing for you. So that rarely happens, right? There certainly are lots and lots of people I've met who are proud to work for whomever they work for, but do they go advertise for you? So I think that's the first thing is that Zappos has a wonderful interior that is within the company's storytelling unit where they are sharing stories of customer experiences. They're sharing um, both the professional but also the personal development of the people who work there. And because it's you know a moderately small company of 1,300 people or so, they know those stories, and they're almost all in the same building. And I mean, they have some satellite places, but you know they're all basically all in Las Vegas, and so they see each other, and they're they're induced to talk to each other in a number of ways that we could talk about. So that internal storytelling is just going on all the time, and go, oh yeah, I heard Susie just finished her master's degree. Holy crap, we we ought to have a a, a celebration for that, and. Most of the the people there have a Zappos credit card. And if you think this is a time to take your team out for pizza and beer, go for it. No one's going to ask you any questions. They're going to ask you questions if you spent $500 or $1,000. But if you want to spend, you know, 200 bucks on taking everybody out to pizza because you rocked it for the last three months, they want you to do that. So that's the sense in which there's trust. There's a feedback mechanism. There's real focus on social relationships. And even Zappos has finally got it. It's not about making people happy. It's about challenging people to do something with a trusted team that is really taking a dent in the universe. So um, so from that, we started doing work on storytelling, and I can transition there. But I'll just take a break. Let's no, jump in. No, I, no, I love that. I want, to, I want to hear that because I want to talk about that storytelling now You know, we, because that excites me. It's like how do we capture those stories? How do you encourage everyone else to be great storytellers? So sh- short setup for that. So as we were doing the oxytocin work in the laboratory, um, we originally designed um, experiments where people could interact with each other. In fact, they did it by computer because, you know, we're using college students and you don't want to get rid of the cute guy and girl effect. So as you know, oxytocin is a reproductive hormone, uh, the receptors in the breast and the penis. And, you know, we, we don't want, you know, you can imagine, Ian, you, there's a cute girl across from you to experiment. Of course you're going to behave so nice because, you know, you, even if you're married, you still want a that cute girl to, you know, like, kind of like you. Okay, anyway, so we do these interactions by computers, by computer, but they're, they're very scripted and, um, they don't work for everybody. They, you know, there's normal variant on how people interact by computer. So one of my colleagues, uh, uh, George Barraza, who's a social psychologist said, oh, in, in psychology, oftentimes we'll use like stories to change people's moods. I'm like, oh, that's a good idea. Let's try that. So we developed just, you know, the, the, you know, experimental, particularly neuroscience, but all experiments are like Mythbusters, you know, like you start small scale. So let's just try one little video and just see what happens because who knows? We could be wrong. We don't, I don't want to, you know, burn three years and $300,000 on some <laughs> stupid idea. So let's just take this little video, which he cut up, which is a little kid with cancer and his father talking about, um, uh, from St. Jude Children's Hospital, how, how St. Jude has extended the kid's life and now he's done with chemo and radiation, but eventually his tumor is going to grow back and he's going to, in a couple of months, he's going to die. And it, it's, it's, these are not actors, it's true story, it's really heartbreaking. And so we made one version in which the father talks about cancer and death and, and how he's trying to connect with his son before he dies. Another version which is the father and son of the zoo, same father and son, they call him Miracle Boy, but no discussion of cancer or death. And we had people watch one, or, one of those two versions of the video. And in fact, in the emotional version, 
we get this huge spike in oxytocin. In fact, such a big spike is the most reliable stimulus for oxytocin we've ever found. We've used it now with psychiatric patients and psychopaths, and lots of other uh, groups have used it. We've shared it broadly. It's a really good stimulus. So then we go, okay, well, we're not completely nuts. So then we went back and looked at that little little. So we cut out the story from a longer seven-minute video. It, we, the one we use is 100 seconds. We started looking at it from a narrative perspective. Try to figure out, like, okay, what the hell? Why did this work, right? What, what's going on? It's got a perfect story arc. It's got uh, a mystery that begins it. Who are these people? Why, why are they in this place? Um, it builds tension. Uh, we've actually had people uh, report their emotions and measure brain activity every five seconds. Every five seconds is actually what, how you're feeling. And so we know that the emotional peak is right in the middle, second 50, when my father says, Ben is dying. Ben is the son. And, and that's a bombshell. So all of a sudden, Ben's getting better. He's playing with his brother. And then he says, but Ben is dying. And you go, oh, oh, holy crap. Okay, now i got to pay attention. And it's basically uh, a very well-constructed story that's a hero's journey structure where the father is going to do this heroic thing, which is fully engage and enjoy the last months of his son's life knowing that the son will die soon. And so the more you engage emotionally, the more hurt the father's going to be. The father says, I, I'm trying to enjoy him, but I, I know he's dying, but he doesn't know that. And so he's a happy little kid, but I'm I'm kind of holding back. Anyway, at the end, he says, I'm going to stay with that boy until he takes his last breath. And you go, holy crap, this guy's a hero. All right, so this is amazing. Okay, so great structure. So we say, okay, let's just say this for this. So we use functional MRI. We wash people's brains. Uh, as they watch this story, um, we gave them a chance to donate money to St. Jude's, and we donated thousands and thousands of dollars to them now. So does it actually affect people's behavior? Maybe just like the story. So what we found is that, in short, now, you know, almost yeah, more than 10 years worth of research, by the way, funded by largely by the U.S. military, which wanted to equip soldiers with storytelling skills. So when they go into some village in Afghanistan, instead of pointing guns at people, they can actually use words, Right. We would like to find the Taliban in your village. We understand they're here. We want to keep your family safe. I have a family. I want to stay safe. If you can tell us where he is or where they are, we want to get him out of your village and then get out of your way. And that's a different story than tell me where that guy is or I'm going to shoot you, bastard. Right? That's a, that's a different ballgame. Um, so anyway, uh, so, uh, you know, I think sometimes the military gets a lot of crap for uh, either wasting money. But anyway, we, we spend, all, uh, you know, about a million bucks to taxpayer money. Plus, uh, doing this work to, to really help them develop software to train soldiers in, in narrative structure, uh, and so what we found. Sorry, long wow. story. No, it's that? awesome. I'm, I'm enthralled by it. <laughs> so you do two things to persuade people. This is what the people who are marketing, who are listening, want to hear. One is you've got to uh, attract and sustain attention. That's one and a half things. So uh, the brain is a very lazy organ, right? We we it's so energy intensive to use your brain, that it wants to just uh, use habits. So we, uh, this is good and bad for marketers, right? We establish habits. So Ian, when you go home and your wife uh, is going to nag you about not doing the dishes, dropping your dirty clothes on the floor, you're out now is to say, honey, I love you, but my lazy, lazy brain, for the last 40 years, I've done this thing. And I, I want to change to make you happy, honey, because I love you so much. But my lazy brain is going to slow me down. So you have to remind me. And it takes 30 to 60 days to change a habit. So for every for 30 days in a row, you got to remind me not to do this thing that bugs you, and then I can probably change. So, okay, so 
so the, that's good and bad for marketers, right? If I establish a habit in which I always buy this brand of, uh, this is bubbly water, uh, if I always buy this brand of club soda, then I'm, it, it saves energy for me just to buy the brand without even looking at the price. Mm-hmm. So that's what we really want as marketers. The downside is if I'm messaging to you, I've got to sustain attention. So something starts, uh, uh, you know, we see a spike uh, in arousal level, so I'm paying attention because I went from no input to some input. But oftentimes, for messages that are very uh, poorly constructed, our attention wanes very rapidly, and we never get to the point of persuasion. But attention is not enough. The second thing we found is we need emotional resonance with the characters in that story. And it turns out that emotional resonance is driven by the brain's production of oxytocin. So now, and we know this because we've given people synthetic oxytocin to have them watch like public service announcements, and they care more about the characters. They'll follow the lead that you're giving them. They'll donate money to these charities more. So we need to actually care about the people in the ad. Who do we care about? We care about people who are having a conflict. We care about people who are does something real that we can relate to. Again, that means not every marketing campaign works for everybody. And so we can narrowly segment essentially the population and tell you who this story works the best for. But so it's attention plus emotional resonance. So you've got to have the emotional part. If you don't have the emotion, you can't move people. Uh, again, I, the last story. I can put girls in a Coors beer commercial, and I'm a heterosexual male. I'm going to watch those girls in bikinis. I am not going to buy Coors beer because I think it's awful. Um, <laughs> sorry. Um, for me, it's awful. So, so again, I'm going to watch it, but I'm not persuaded. But if you give me a good story about how Coors is made, uh, the, the conflicts, uh, who did this recently? Budweiser did this uh, recently for the Super Bowl, right? Which was Adolphus Budweiser came from Poland and came to the U.S. And, and right, this kind of really nice narrative structure. Uh, it was a very, very nicely designed commercial. He had all these conflicts. He uh, almost drowned and blah, blah, blah. And finally he gets to this place and meets, uh, it, was, it was Anheuser and Bush, I think. So Anheuser, they meet, finally meet in a bar and, uh, St. Louis or something and decide they're going to make beer together. And so nice story structure, kind of a hero's journey because he's got to survive these hurdles to get there. And then we presumably get a benefit from it. So gosh, that was, I'm sorry. You talk now for a while. No, I don't want to talk. <laughs> I have you on this show. Cause I want to hear you hear these awesome stories. And it, it's, it's great because these are stuff that great marketers intuitively know. But then to see the science behind it and be able to hone the science behind it is important. But one of the things is like, you know, I, I, I've used some of your studies in my talks and I've, I've used some of them to, to show people like how the story arc is so important and why you can't skip a part of it because the people have to connect to them and they have to be emotionally involved. Um, but then, you know, when I start talking about your studies and I've, I've talked to other people about it, they're like, well, you know, how am I going to have to do blood work for every person that I, <laughs> that I want to yeah. challenge? Uh, so, you know, when you go into these, when you go into companies and you help them and you go and use these marketing skills that you've now learned and, and neuroeconomics, how are you applying it without putting too much pain on these people? <laughs> that, that's a great question. Uh, so with funding from the U S military, you know, they want to be able to use these technologies in the field, in, in the theater of war, potentially. Um, and by the way, we don't know how much they use them. We, we, it, the, there's always a drug separation, so we don't, we don't get to get that feedback. But anyway, uh, we developed a technology using wireless sensors. 
So now we can put sensors on your torso and fingers, and instead of just doing a before and after blood draw, we can actually pick up data a thousand times a second. So what we've been able to do is build algorithms that um, uh, measure, quantify the immersion in that experience. So again, if I ask you um, how much did you like the uh, the Super Bowl, or how much did you like this commercial during the Super Bowl? You know, I mean, liking is is, is very poorly defined neurologic. Yeah. It's difficult to say. Or if I'm turning a dial, uh, what does that really mean? Right? These these are unconscious emotional responses that you know we're we're just barely aware of it, if at all. So basically, we developed an algorithm we call Zest. Zest is something we derive mathematically called the Zach engagement statistic. But how much Zest does this ad have? And it runs roughly on a one to ten scale. So higher is better. And so we put these sensors on people, have them watch ads. And then we can do a couple things. We can tell you on average, commercial A has a zest of seven, commercial B has a zest of four, seven is better than four, so that's going to be better. And also we can reverse engineer the process and go, you know, commercial C, overall zest isn't high, but for women over 40 with kids, this thing is through the roof. And so you might want to target, if, if you want to run commercial C, target that for lifetime or target that for, uh, I don't know, women's weekly or whatever, you know, whatever magazine. Um, so, again, we're getting this unconscious and emotional response at high frequency, and now we actually will take a commercial for a client and actually animate the data below it. So you can see second by second where the story does well. You can see where it loses attention, where the emotional connection comes from. And, you know, when you show people this, their brains kind of pop. They go, whoa, wow, you can really do that, you know? Yeah. So it's super fun for us. That's awesome. I mean, it, it, I mean, that's a marketer's dream in a certain way, isn't it? <laughs> it is, except, again, we'll, we'll do it. It depends where you are. So a lot of times uh, for clients we've worked with, they are doing this ex post. They, they somehow made this amazing uh, commercial. I'll give you a concrete example in a second. And then for that same client, they made a bunch of the commercials that didn't work well. And they're like, what? What did we do? We, we, you know, because the focus groups, you know, are pretty bogus. And so, um, so a lot of sometimes it's ex post, just like, what did it do? And this, this immersion measure, Zest, strongly predicts, like with 80% plus accuracy, sales bumps, uh, YouTube shares. I mean, it's really predictive. If it's a good story, it's a good story, and you want to share this information with others. So, concrete example, we, we did some work for uh, BBDO, big, big global advertising agency, and one of their clients is Guinness. And uh, one of the best ads we've ever tested neurologically, uh, listeners can Google this later, is a Guinness ad called Empty Chair. Mm-hmm. And it, it's, uh, it's a pub uh, in England somewhere, and you are looking from the outside. You come inside, you see the barmaid. She's putting the chairs down, and uh, she puts this glass of Guinness on a, on a table before anyone gets there with a chair in front of it. And then the bar opens, people come in, and then time accelerates, and you see the seasons change, and there's a birthday party. And every day, there's that glass of Guinness on this empty table, even though the bar's full. So now I'm intrigued. Okay, what, what's going on here? And then about halfway through this 60-second commercial, a guy goes to take the chair at the table with a glass of Guinness, and the barmaid very suddenly goes, just shakes her head. So now we're thinking, okay, husband, boyfriend, I don't know what, you know, what is the deal with this chair? So now we're back outside and we're walking, we, the camera, the the audience is walking towards the pub, the door opens. And now we see, we're looking at the door. It's a soldier in uniform and camouflage. And he looks around the bar. It's like his neighborhood bar, right? 
and he sees the, the barmaid, and she just kind of nods to him. He nods back. He sees the t- chair. He walks over, picks up the glass of Guinness. And then the people in the bar see him, and they raise their glasses. Mm. I guess a hero's journey story. Yeah. And it's so well constructed. I'm getting goosebumps just telling yeah, you. Yeah, I did so too. Well <laughs> like, don't you want to be one of those guys who supports the soldiers who do amazingly difficult things to keep us safe? Like, I want to be that guy, so I better drink a Guinness. Right? We, yeah. we get it. So the, the product works right into the narrative. So that's a killer one. They've done some, not BBDO, bless them, they're a really wonderful company, but they've done some kind of dog ones for, uh, for Guinness that, you know, on first cut seem like they'd be a good idea. So let me give you one more quick example. I'm sorry to be blabbing on and on. Oh, but. no, this is incredible. So they did one a couple years ago for Guinness called Barnes Sisters. The Barnes Sisters are twins who are uh, Olympic skiers. And, it, and it's, this, it's, it's, it's a wonderful story because it's just the Ken Burns pan in on a black and white photo of the two sisters holding their skis. So we're panning in, and it has words underneath, qualified to, for 2004 Olympics, qualified below each, each woman, uh, you know, didn't get into the finals, didn't get into the finals, qualified for the 2008 Olympics, and then pause. When, when waiting, I'm a new information, information. So anticipation, as you know, very important for storytelling. So I'm building anticipation to ill to compete. Oh, okay. And then it says, gave up her spot so her sister could go into the Olympics. And I'm like, wow, that's okay. Now, now again, another hero's journey. Now this is interesting. The music swells. We get a big emotional response. And then at the end, it says, Guinness for people who have great character. And literally, I show that in a room of marketers, and they will just burst out laughing. So because the story, which is beautiful, has nothing to do with the product. And that ad did okay in market and neurologically is in the middle of the road. It's not terrible. But, again, there's got to be this congruence between the story moving into the product that the empty chair story does perfectly. Um, and um, But it is a real story, and, and we're engaged in that story, but it doesn't really give us – a, a good call to action. But I'm imagining the pitch now to, to the Guinness guys. I, I wasn't there, but I'm imagining. Yeah. The pitch is 80% of our drinkers are male. What are guys like? We're like sports and girls. So this is going to kill, <laughs> right? So no one knows. As opposed to, hey, here's an interesting idea. Sports, women, timing with the Olympics. Why don't we try to do this? So that story would have been a nice story, I think, for Visa or or some company where you want to just have kind of general remembrance of that it's there. But for a product that you're going to purchase at a, a low price point, I need to have explicit call for action now, and that that story just doesn't do it. Wow, that, that that's I mean, those are two awesome, awesome examples of success and failure in that that little difference in the congruency. Um, I have 8,000 questions, but my first one is, you know, when it comes to storytelling, actually, I'm going to come, my my first one's more about the science, because um, did you do any science or any, any research around priming before going into these, or was it completely controlled? Uh, no, yeah, com- completely, uh, you know, shooting from the hip, because it really wasn't an area I knew much about, and... Uh, uh, I, I mean, I think it's a, a fair question to ask, why the hell am I on here? Why, why do I think I know anything? Um, I'm a 25-person behavioral neuroscience lab, and so, uh, you know, what we found is that we grant work and we, NIH funded and whatever, 
But, you know, having these little corporate projects is a really great way to keep the lab funded, but also focus us on questions that real humans have, not that guys in white coats think is interesting, but yeah. what do you have, which is we actually don't know how story works very well. Could you help us understand, like we, the U.S. military, or we, uh, BBDO, why this, you know, we know that some of these stories kill. We don't know why. If we know why, then presumably we can replicate it and get that information. So I think... Um, yeah, so we really started out naively, but sometimes being naive, like the oxytocin work, if I knew now how hard that work was to do, I never would have done it. It was <laughs> such a risk, and it was you know, everyone said it was impossible, and you know, I wasn't smart enough to, to know it wasn't impossible. So yeah. I think sometimes coming in not being – I've never had a marketing class. I mean, obviously, I've read a lot of books, but – you know, I don't. I'm not a marketing professor. I don't. I don't. I've never worked in marketing, which but is better. Again, well, maybe cause I don't. I don't have any preconceived notions, right? Exactly. So, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Follow no, up. no, I was to say exactly. No, yeah, no, I agree with you 100. percent And I think that's how you got to these awesome, awesome conclusions because I see so much that people have preconceived notions in marketing. And I was just in an interview with a great marketer who was like, I always come into it with a beginner's mind, and I think that's fantastic that you had that. Um, but, you know, so when it comes to the storytelling, you know, if we're not the U.S. military, if we're not this big organization, what are some of the hacks? What are some of the ways that you've found to maximize storytelling when it comes to decision making and also inside of organizations? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, first, the story has to be alive. Right. So with, let's talk in organizations first. So what we find in particular, uh, the sort of analog, I think, of the hero's journey within organizations are what I call purpose narratives. So why are we even doing this? Why do we exist, right? Um, so oftentimes those those narratives are found in the founder stories. So somebody or some set of people, you know, mortgage their house, uh, put you know everything they had on the line, almost always. And any successful business, people took a lot of risk to get going, almost always. Who was that founder? Why did he or she or they decide to do this? Why was it so important to them? Why did they risk their livelihood starting this business? So let's understand that founder story. Um, the, the consulting company McKinsey recently built an app called 10,000 Stories. So what they realized was that the people who work at McKinsey now didn't realize, didn't, don't realize uh, that McKinsey was involved in so many of the great Epochs in history. Uh, so, from from the negotiations at Yalta to end World War II, they were there doing analyses, helping FDR negotiate uh, the Iran hostage crisis. They were behind the scenes providing information to the negotiators, and so they started. So they found some historical things, made posters, and then they realized, like, I bet our employees have their own stories of something spectacular they did, maybe on a smaller scale, but still spectacular. So I built this app called 10,000 Stories. I thought, you know, maybe in five years, we'll collect 10,000 stories. People can, we know when they're kind of bored or whatever, they can page through them. They got 10,000 stories within six months. So now they're up to about 40,000 stories. So just tell us a short story of some project you work on for a client that just made an impact on the world in a positive way. And so these stories are alive. They're living. They're shared. They're a part of McKinsey's kind of DNA. We're discussing stories all the time. So the first is, live these stories, right? If they're powerful, then they should be part of that conversation that we're, we're commonly having. Boomy Zappos certainly does. Herman Miller certainly does. These wonderfully run companies. Whole Foods certainly does. Um, the second is from a marketing perspective, 
find that resonant story for your consumer. So what we found is the stories work best when they're at human scale. So um, although the Yalta story is, you know, from Kinsey is amazing. Oftentimes a story about a single consumer, often a name to consumer, right? Maybe not a last name, but um, uh, Susan went to our store one day and she was buying food for her family and discovered she couldn't pay for all her groceries. And so our manager, uh, who had known Susan for a long time because she was a long-time employee, a long-time customer, um, paid for the rest of her groceries. And, um, and he found out later that Susan had just left her abusive husband and she had two kids and, and, um, and, but, you know, we can't do that for everybody, but that's something that we take personally, right? You're, a, you're I'm making this up now, but you know, you're a personal, you're a person to us. You're not a customer. You're not a number. You're a human being. Okay. Now that's a great human scale, scale story, right? Um, so again, go ahead. No, uh, so, so human no. scale story with real conflict. As social creatures, we want to figure out what the other humans are doing. So as you know, one of the real theories on why we still have stories, and this comes really directly out of Aristotle, is that stories teach us something, right? And what do they teach us about? Maybe about, you know, if you're a teenager and you're camping with your friends in the woods and the power goes out, don't go outside the cabin. That's where the slashers are, right? Well, okay, I, I learned that story already. But they tell stories about human endeavor. They tell us the stories about, God forbid, should our children have cancer, what I might do. Um, by seeing what others are doing in this situation, real or fictional, our brain doesn't care. Wow, so, yeah. So real conflict, human scale, and then real emotion, right? And so uh, I, I think, you know, the Barn Sisters story had a little emotion, but it wasn't, it wasn't, it didn't resonate with a Guinness beer drinker. So it's got to really be genuine, honest, connected emotion. By the way, we've, we've looked at ads with stars or no stars, music or no music. Those don't add much to a story that's crappy. If it's a great story, it's a great story. It doesn't matter who your characters are. If they can embody that story and it's living, it's going to have an impact. Oh, you, you just give me goosebumps there because that's something I try and tell to people all the time because people come to me and they're like, you know, Ian, what's the best equipment? Ian, what's the best color? What's the best format? I'm like, well, do you have a good story? Well, I haven't worked on that yet. Like, <laughs> and I'm like, no, that's the number one thing you have to work on. And to your point, the conflict. But I find that people, especially marketers, are afraid of conflict. But it's so critical. And and that, that was another interesting thing to me. That was a really aha moment. When you talked about intention and engagement, uh, that the the combination of oxytocin and cortisol. And, and like how there has to be that balance of cortisol. Uh, can you tell me how you became aware of that and what that, how that works, the mechanics of that? Yeah, thank you. Uh, um, so when we started studying these stories, we, we again really came in very naively, and we just said we're going to show you essentially a public service ad for St. Jude's for other other uh, charities, and let's just see if we can find the correlates that predict what people would donate. And we found, again, that oxytocin wasn't enough. You had to have this attentional response. Uh, uh, mentioned with increase in cortisol. Now we can see an increase in heart rate, for example. So you have to be paying attention enough because your brain's a lazy organ. Um, and so it was that combination, that attentional response plus the emotional response. One without the other didn't work. And so that is a high bar for marketers, right? You, you've got to sustain tension so that kind of narrative arc is important because that sustains my attention but then you got to do something with that if you got my attention again because there's girls in bikinis 
doesn't, from what we've said, is found isn't even doesn't have much of an effect unless I begin to care about the people in that story. And the caring about is the oxytocin part. So it is difficult. I, I don't think it's at all easy. No, no, no. And, and by the way, we can't reverse engineer it. So you know, people often ask, like, well, given that you know all this, you should be able to create the most perfect, you know, ad ever. Actually, we can't. You know, we, at first, again, naively, I thought we could. Like, why don't we just just chop out every five seconds? That's not a story. That's just, you know, that, those are just physiologic responses. You know, I think there's a real, there's still a real art to doing this. You've got to be a great storyteller. You've got to, uh, I think, again, kind of embody what your customer is going through. So for the new book, uh, you know, I spent a bunch of time at a lot of companies, and one of those was this great design firm, Ideo, up in the Bay Area. And they're very famous for, for doing these ethnographic studies. They have anthropologists who work for them, and they they live the customer experience. So they'll take their their designers, and they'll just have them, um, uh, you know, have that experience. So, for example, they have a famous uh, case in which they have a big healthcare division, so designing products for healthcare. And they had some of their uh, ethnographers spend a couple days in hospital beds. What do you do all day, right? And well, what I want you to do is look at the ceiling. Particularly if you're quite ill, you're not ill enough to sit up, so now you're on your back. So they realized we can put stuff on the ceiling that can engage you, right? That can help reduce your stress. That could just be nature scenes or it could be putting a movie. So they put installed screens in the ceiling. <laughs> right? But you wouldn't think of that unless you actually spent time as that customer, right, if you will. Mm-hmm. So I, I think, you know, being on the front lines, I think, is, is, a, is a killer app for marketers, Right. Spend time with the customers. Oh, you're dead on. And that's actually something we, you know, we do with all of our clients is we actually we storyboard out their customers process and we draw it for them so they, they can actually see it. Because it's funny. We always think that we're the customer. And we're not. And when you storyboard that out, because the other aspect of what you're talking about, too, is is the situation is how we decide. And that's what I was asking about the priming, because depending on where someone's coming from, their chemistry is going to be different. And so how they react to this is going to be different. You know, if, if you want to think from a chemical, but you don't know if it's, if it's 90 degrees out or if it's 50 degrees out. And so us, you know, that's one of those things that we do. And I think that's so critical is put yourself in your customer's shoes, in your client's shoes, in your team member's shoes, right? So how and that's, so go ahead. Yeah, and, and that's what oxytocin does is that it increases our sense of empathy. So if I can message you in an effective way, if I can connect to you at work effectively, my brain makes this chemical and says, oh, now I, I've kind of melted the distance between us from an emotional perspective. And so imagine what a great team I made I am. If not only can I cognitively say, oh, here, here's what my team wants to do, but now I can say this is why they care about it. That's the emotional component. And so then in these great teams, they are like uh, you know jazz musicians. So they can roof off each other, understand what they're doing. And it's just this gorgeous thing to behold. Starbucks does a really good job of this. The next time you're at Starbucks for listeners, um, uh, they've never paid me, I've never worked for them, but if you go to Starbucks, a good Starbucks, you see people who pick up what someone else is doing. You see you see someone coming in to pick up the register when you're doing this. They're so well-trained often, and many of the Starbucks I've been to, that it's, again, it's like they're just ripping each, off each other, but also a great sense of warmth. You'll see a touch. You'll see someone go by and smile. So I just just go in and watch those guys, at, at, you know, as opposed to reading your phone. Just just observe them for a couple of minutes, and it's a beautiful thing. And that's this kind of high emotional connection 
Why? Well, they're all mostly all young people. They've been trained very well, for sure. Uh, but also there's this real sense of community, um, and I think that's important. Uh, anyway, I'm sorry, I cut you off. No, no. <laughs> you should not be apologizing. This is awesome. And I, I think that's really cool that you say that because so often we miss out in all the cues around us, right? And in all these awesome things. And, and it's so cool to go into an awesome company and see the subtleties. And that's why I love what you're talking about because it, I love walking into a company and you're like, okay, this is working. Why is it working? And you see that kind of thing. And people might think, well, it's because they pay them well or that they have all these benefits, but it, it's that team building that you're talking about that's important. And in the end, that's marketing, right? Because they have a be- awesome team, they make you feel at home, and they work well together, and you get your coffee on time, and they're happy for the most part. Uh, yeah. And you're happy. Yeah. And I, did, I did what you did, because I was naive, and I, the company was always, oh, come in and give us a talk, we'll pay you. It's like, don't pay me, just let me spend the whole day and talk to people. And I would just talk to the employees and see what's it like here. What, how, how do you interact with people? And, um, yeah, they'll, you know, people will talk to you. It's kind of, kind of an amazing thing. <laughs> um, and so that's how we started building up this work on trust was first just talk to employees, then start to measuring, you know, measurable activity again with, with permission from the leadership. Um, and then develop now these online tools. And so, uh, for listeners, uh, uh the book is trust factor, but, if you go to ofactor.com, oh, like oxytocin, okay. there's a free uh, organizational trust tool. You can assess trust in your organization, assess these eight factors that are used to create trust, and also assess uh, purpose, so this transcendent purpose. So we've done all the work. We, it's a free free service. Just you know, take advantage of it. And, um, you know, I think it's um, – you can take this – it's a little-by-little little process, right? You don't have to go from – 10% trust to 100%, just go from 10 to 20, from 20 to 30. So um, just take baby steps to improve the culture. And the culture is humans. And how do, how do humans interact? They, it comes from the brain. So there's a real sense in which the neuroscience gives you a framework to understand how to create a culture where your employees do want to market for you, where they love where they work, they are passionate, they can expend their energy in a way that's uh, productive, that move the organization's goals forward. Um, and, and the science really has developed to a point, not just from my, my lab, but other, point, other labs too, to tell us really how to do this as effectively as possible. What, what kind of environment can I create where you would show up even if I weren't paying you? So that's kind of was a starting point. Uh, so we, we also spend a lot of time in nonprofits. We have people who are really volunteers. As you know, you know, where I live in California, there are tons of startups where people keep working when the money runs out because they think – this app, this product is going to really change the universe. And I don't even care. I don't even want to get paid. I just want to do this thing. So that's the kind of environment we're going to start from. So everyone at work fundamentally is a volunteer, right? You can, you're not a slave. You can go and choose to work somewhere else. And money we know neurologically is a very weak motivator. But social contact, social connection is a very powerful and long-lasting long motivator. So let's create that social environment where you can take this energy, this passion, expend it in a way that allows you to grow, to be challenged, to be recognized, to work with people who are trustworthy, and to feel like, again, you're making an impact on the world. Wow. I didn't know about your tool, Trust. So I knew about the book, and you know, I, I think everyone needs to read it. I'm so excited to read it. But So this O-Factor tool, um, how did you develop it? How, how, how did you go about developing that? Because that, that interests me too, because that's a tough thing is developing an online tool. 
It is. And so, again, first we just started in the laboratory um, measuring brain activity while people did work tasks that we designed. Then we went into businesses measuring brain activity while people did work tasks we designed so that we could actually quantify how productive they were, not just ask them. We also asked them, how, how much energy do you have? How productive do you feel? And then from that, over the course of years, developed and refined this tool um, because, again, it's not feasible to, to take blood or take an EEG measurement from employees at work. Um, and then just tested that tool over and over and over from specific companies that have before and after culture interventions to uh, collecting a nationally representative sample of U.S. employees to assess trust in their workplace and all these factors. So just just some some quick data. I'm gonna I'm gonna pull, I prepared for you. Uh, and uh, so here's what we find from the national survey. Uh, we find that those people who work in the highest quartile of high trust organizations, so the sorry the the highest 20% of uh, organizations with high trust using our measure compared to those in the lowest quartile have 74% less chronic stress, 106% more energy at work, are 50% more productive, experience 60% more joy at work, are 50% more likely to not be looking for a job, so retention's up, um, uh, uh, connect with their organization's purpose 70% more, 56% higher job satisfaction, 22% more innovative, they take 13% fewer sick days. And here's my favorite one. They're 29% more satisfied with their lives outside of work. Mm-hmm. So really this is about looking at all the stakeholders at work, which is the employees, the customers, and your community. And if you're driving one of those things down in the expense of the others, eventually people are just going to give up, right? If, if I don't have a family life and I like working for this job, but I'm working so many hours and so much stress, that my wife's going to leave me. That's not good. If I can't go to my kid's baseball game or I can't go to their soccer game or, you know, that's not good. So you've got to have this, this kind of integration of all the aspects of your life. And in high trust organizations, you do that because I'm not micromanaging you, right? I really have an opportunity to let you do what you, what you really want to do. Again, hold you accountable for sure, but give you the tools to be successful. And maybe you like to work at, at three in the morning. If you get your job done, if your team is making progress, why do I care? So in the book, I talk about companies like uh, Virgin Group, um, HubSpot, many other places, Zynga, that got rid of vacation time. You want to take some days off? Take them off. I don't want to have the accounting for it. I don't want to micromanage you. You know what your projects are. We want you to take time off. When you have time, awesome. Or if you want to go for a week to Italy and you want to keep in touch with your team by email and they're, that's great. Work from Italy. Uh, why do I care? As long as you're getting your work done, right? So that's the level of trust I'm talking about where I'm empowering you. Again, you've got to set clear expectations. You've got to know what your milestones are. Coaching is certainly part of this. But yeah, now, now I dig this place, right? Like, oh yeah, I have unlimited vacation time. It, you know, first of all, think of the cost savings from the business perspective. Now Virgin doesn't have to account for time in, time out. Did you get three weeks of vacation this year or 2.5? Whatever. You, you, you got a lull and you want to take some, some time off or you're scheduling six months in advance. Hey, hey team, you know what? I might take 10 days and, uh, and go travel to South America. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, because, I mean, yeah, when you think – that brings me back to – I was immediately thinking of economics and, and that gap between how much it costs for collecting taxes and working on them and actually using them and how much it costs everyone. Oh, and that's a huge right. amount of money. And, and same thing there. How much gap does it take to manage that stuff? And mental energy, too. 
Now that for sure. Think, because it's like everyone's thinking about, well, how can I maximize my day off and, and, and how can I maximize it instead of thinking about the important stuff? That's awesome. Awesome. Can I give you one more very short example? Sorry. I love man. it. It takes so much of your time. Well, no. So, <laughs> it's awesome. Uh, <laughs> uh, I spent uh, some time talking to uh, a VP at a financial services company called Thrivent. used to be Thrivent Financial for Lutherans. And just re- rebranded to Thrivent uh, based in Minneapolis. And, uh, and they're Lutherans. <laughs> so, you know, they, they, they're German. You know, they love rules. And so they had these exquisite rules for travel. And so if you travel with a client, you can have one drink yourself. You can buy your client two drinks, but not three. But the drinks have to be less than its cost. You can stay in this kind of hotel. You have to fly coach. Unless you stand on your head, twirl around, then you can fly business class. <laughs> and so the, the, the paperwork burden just to get reimbursed or travel was enormous. And so they created this rule-busting committee that every year looks at the rules that employees have to follow and gets rid of them. So they changed, again, this is trust. They changed this exquisite set of rules for travel to, here's a budget for the quarter, use, use reasonable judgment. So we're going to replace rules, uh, judgment for rules. So if you need to buy, uh, you, you think your client deserves a $50 bottle of wine, that's fine. If you spend, you know, $20,000 on your trip to uh, England, we're going to have to have a conversation about that. But, um, yeah, if, if you're working all night, you know, till five o'clock and you're going to take that 8 p.m. flight to England and you think and you got to work the next morning, and you think business class is justified. Who are we to say? So um, I think it's really Google does this, too. So, you know, work on getting rid of rules and allowing people to they're adults. They're smart. And they realize, and this also helps create owners. So I really want part of the, the high trust organization is to have everyone think about value creation. So if I'm an owner and not an employee, then I'm thinking about, oh yeah, I could spend 20 grand on first class airfare to England, or I could probably fly their business for four grand, still get a pretty good night's sleep and be ready to go in the morning. And I just saved my company, whatever, $17,000. So I should probably do that, right? Because if I'm burning money, I'm not going to have a job eventually. Yep. Oh, wow. Man, that's... We're totally off topic. You want to go back to marketing? No, no. <laughs> uh, this, I mean, it all works together, right? If it, you're a business owner, think about these things. And, 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 and the amount of time we think about that, I try and explain to people, I'm like, especially my team, but you think that we our brain is this infinite mechanism that we can put stuff in and and it, you know, we can figure all that stuff out and work on our most important tasks. And that's not the case. And if you're thinking about like how to game the system or how to do this or angry with something or doing something else, you're not utilizing your time to the best. You're not happy. You're not fulfilled. And that's such a good point. Awesome. Awesome. Paul, um, if someone wants to engage you, what's the best way to do it? If there's a company out there, it's like, you know what? This sounds great. I need this for my company. Uh, lots of ways to find me. Uh, more about me at pauljzak.com. Uh, the uh, organizational trust website is ofactor.com. And you can email me directly, paul at ofactor.com, uh, or just Google me. I'll come up. Probably, wear, <laughs> probably wearing a goofy hat or something, but yeah, I'll come up right away. Um, so, And, uh, you know, I think what's what's nice for me on the on the book is that, you know, to be able to work with companies with thousands of employees – and create a culture where people are more productive and happier and healthier. Um, it's fun to work at scale like that. And so it's been super gratifying. And, um, and the, the, the 
team we've built around O-Factor. Uh, these guys are, are super pros and a beautiful culture dashboard and, and so many nice tools that make what for me is the hardest part of running an organization, which is the people stuff, you know, maybe because I'm a Martian and I don't know the people well enough. That's why I run experiments. But, you know, handling all that, all that people stuff is difficult. And, and to have a structured way to do that, to measure it, to manage it, um, I think is, you know, probably pretty useful. Lots of other places to do it, too, by the way. I mean, you, you can certainly look around. But I do think thinking about the science of human interaction is valuable for marketing, for management. Just for being a better human being. I mean, yes. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm trying to be a good human being. So here's one thing I do, and I'll do it with you, which is I want to end every conversation with the word service. So, I, and I want to be of service to you. And so I want you to reach out to me in the next, you know, couple of months and let me know how I can help you. It's been such a pleasure to be talking with you, and I've talked your ear off. Oh, uh, so uh, I really mean that. I think I, I am only a useful human being if I'm of service to other people around me. So. Um, I want you to reach out to me and for listeners. Yeah, reach out. I, I want to help people. I'm, um, I don't know. I want to do something useful in my life. That's, for once. that's, I mean, that's my philosophy too. So as everyone knows, like I try and help as many people as possible and thank you so much for being on the show. It's been amazing. You talk any, I'm going to listen to this again and again. So uh, I know other people will, but Paul, Paul, Zach, thank you so much for being on the show. Um, you know, Paul's books, the moral molecule, and the trust factor are available on Amazon as well as moral markets. Uh, go to ofactor.com. You can click on the show notes and you'll be able to click all those links. Paul, it's been awesome talking to you. If there's anything we can do to help you, please let us know. What a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you all for listening to the Garlic Marketing Show and taking Paul and I on your journey. That's it for the Garlic Marketing Show. If you want to get the inside scoop and the latest techniques, make sure to follow Ian Garlic on Facebook.